America's beautiful Jersey Shore, I'm Adam Teeter. And from Toronto, Canada, I'm Joanna Sherino. Still in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. <laughs> oh, Zach. <laughs> this is the Vine Pair Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, I just want everyone to, to really hear the dedication that we have to this pod. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we are all podcasting from other locations other than our normals besides Zach. Yeah. We bring our mics with us. Yeah. We, we have Mike will travel. Have Mike. (laughs) Uh, so yeah. Um, thanks you guys for taking the time to record today, which is basically the weekend of 4th of July. Uh, everyone is getting this in their feed, uh, the day after the 4th. Hope you had a nice holiday weekend uh, as you're getting back to your offices, um, or wherever it is that you do your work these days. But before we uh, jump into the podcast today, Zach, since you are the one who is still in Seattle, sleepless in Seattle, let's say, uh, what did you drink this last week? He was waiting for that joke. I haven't made that ever, actually. I guess. Well, it's very relevant right now because my children uh, are not sleeping. Uh, Uh, mm -hmm. You know, whatever. It happens. Um, What am I drinking? Good question. I think the couple things I've had recently that have been standouts. I taught a wine class on this past weekend that was uh, no surprise knowing me, a Washington wine class. And one of the highlights was I opened a bottle of 2000 Cabernet Sauvignon from Chateau Saint-Michel's Cold Creek Vineyard. And uh, Chateau Saint-Michel is a, obviously a kind of a pillar of the industry here and, and actually a winery whose wines I don't drink all that often, but it was kind of cool to to open this much older bottle and pour it alongside a much younger Cabernet Sauvignon from a different producer in the state and give people that opportunity to kind of see how that kind of wine develops and, and really kind of highlight something that I always find interesting to talk about with people, which is like we, and we've talked about on the show a few times, like there's a tendency to assume that older wine is inherently better or that if you don't like old wine, you're not a good wine drinker. And it was an interesting split among the attendees about whether, you know, which wine they preferred. And I, you know, really tried to kind of emphasize to everyone, there's not a right or wrong answer here. There's personal preference. And with wine, as with many things, there's no absolutes. And so that was kind of fun for people to get to see. Um, and then, I mean, the other thing I've been drinking is um, actually like a lot of uh, vermouth. I've been kind of in a like vermouth. I guess you'd call them almost like a spritz or like, you know, vermouth and soda kind of phase. It's one of my favorite sort of hot summertime drinks. We actually had some hot weather in Seattle recently, which is kind of nice. Um, It's just like very refreshing to me. It's very obviously like super easy to assemble, low ABV and like, you know, just like splash some either either red or white vermouth in a a glass, some ice, some soda. I'm a happy man. Um, It's not the only thing I want to drink in the summer, but it is a a nice kind of uh, summertime treat for me nice. how about you joanna what, what about up in the uh up in the, the great north um yeah well before we we um headed up here we had a few nice beers this past or good beers this past weekend um one was from grim um whose beers i really like uh was a telos pilsner which was delicious and then another beer from uh greater good imperial brewing company which i've never had before called big summer which is a new england ipa with pineapple that was really delicious. And then since I've been here, not too much drinking, but I did have a Caesar, a really good Caesar. Mm. And I feel like that's doesn't get more Canadian than that. So <laughs> have you guys had not. Caesars before? I can't remember if we've had this conversation. We have and I have. Yes. Okay, right, right, right. And I've had yes, I have had them. Naomi won't have them for obvious reasons. Of course. <laughs> but uh but yeah, I've had them. I, I you know, they're good. I'm not, yeah. we all know this. I don't like Bloody Marys. So, yeah, same. You know, it is what it is for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
Anyways. <laughs> what about you, Adam? Uh, so a, a, a fair amount of things around my birthday. Um, of course. How was it? It was a lot of fun. Um, drank drink some, all the drinks. Drank all the drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, you know, Esprit de Tablas from Tablas Creek. A really great Edna Bianco from Planeta. Uh, a really cool, you know, one of my favorite wines from Pierre Coton, um, Beaujolais. We had uh, some really fun champagne. And then uh, took kind of a break from drinking <laughs> for a little while. Though I did go, I went to my first ever barrel pick release party um, this past week. Yeah, so two of our writers, Aaron Goldfarb and Robert Simonson, did a barrel pick with Sealbacks or Sealbox, a uh, online um, spirits marketplace, and they did barrel picks of uh, New York Distilling Company's rye, and they called it Writer's Rye. So the Ragtime Rye is now Writer's Rye. And it's uh, they they pick two different barrels and are releasing each barrel uh, as you know barrel selects uh, through seal books and uh, it was pretty cool. I was uh, was pretty interested to hear how like how they went through the process and how you know they were allowed to taste many 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 different barrels and then sort of select the ones that they were interested in and then Sealbox goes and buys the barrel and is mm-hmm. the one that bottles it and, and stuff like that. So it was interesting to sort of learn all about that process and support those guys. Did you um, taste it? I did. I tasted both. One was a six-year-old and one was a, I want to say like five and a half-year-old or something they said. Um, okay. so it was one Aaron's and one Robert's or did they collaborate? They, on they collaborated on both of them. They sort oh. of chose them both together. And one of the ryes, the sort of like its claim to fame is that it, it was made with this rye that's indigenous to New York State. Right. Um, this like sort of, you know, and it was much spicier. Um, much more aggressive than the than the other rye that they had picked, and then come to find out that those have sold both have sold so well that when we were there at New York Distilling Company for the party, they picked two more barrels that they're going to release in a you know in a few months. So good for those guys. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, and that's about it. Besides now, like getting ready for all the beach drinks here in the Jersey Shore, but I have a pretty <laughs> funny story. Tell about us. Driving Tell down here. It took forever to drive down here. Uh, last night on a Thursday night in uh, on a Wednesday night, sorry, in uh, in Jersey, and um, we hit like this huge amount of traffic around the PNC Bank Arts Center, it's like, uh-huh. this, like huge outdoor amphitheater. And Naomi's like, you know, oh, there must be all this traffic for a concert. Like, what concert do you think they're all going to? And I just like, kind of looked at the cars. I was like kind of half joking. And I was like, oh, for sure, Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> and then she goes on her phone and looks it up, and it was Dave Matthews Band. That's so funny. <laughs> just like, well, I guess nothing says summer like Dave Matthews Band. Were <laughs> <laughs> there just a, a bunch of bumper stickers? I didn't even see the bumper stickers. I just saw like lots of uh, Volkswagens and <laughs> uh, you know, just like what you would expect. And I was like, this just kind of looks like these are the cars driven by Dave, like some Priuses. Trying mm-hmm. to get off the highway, you know, and I was just like, "Yeah, this is definitely a Dave crowd." <laughs> did you guys? Did you guys have a Dave Matthews Band phase? I did junior year of high school. We've talked about this before, I think, very briefly. We have? Yeah, it's not, like a, it's have. not like the bloody Caesar. I mean, <laughs> so did you have a phase? Me, Joanna. Yeah, yeah, you. I, I mean, very, very briefly. I think he was kind of before my time. I mean, he's he's basically everyone's time. That's it's, what's so it's crazy. A good, it's a good point. <laughs> like 
I, I definitely did not have a Dave Matthews band phase. He was very popular with a lot of kids in my school being like a quasi local. I mean, he like lives in Seattle. Yeah. But uh, I couldn't stand his music. <laughs> so, no. There were a lot of people I knew in high school and college and stuff who would, they, he would always do like a four days worth of shows at the Gorge Amphitheater, which is kind of in the middle of Washington state. And he, and I mean, so many people I know would go camp out there for the four days and I could not think of anything I would want to do less. <laughs> just sounded atrocious to me. And uh, some of these people are my friends, but they made life choices. I didn't understand. Yeah. I had a phase junior year of high school. Naomi and I were talking about it. Cause she had a phase around the same time. That's um, a good time she, to have a day. If you're going to do a day phase, that's the it's time. like, yeah, it's like, like kind of late high school, get it out of the way <laughs> went to one concert and i was like yeah like this just isn't for me um but i know a lot of people still i mean we, we have I mean, even people that work at vine pair that are dave fans that were like i think oh, they yeah? went all or going to see a show in new york or maybe it already happened um oh. yeah so you know i mean i guess dave's a lifestyle man it's true it really he is. does make he does own a winery in virginia that makes pretty good wine though blenheim um there you go so you know dude gives back uh, Look at you tying it into our podcast. Yeah, topic. <laughs> I do. that's how I do. Uh, so, so, you know, one of the bigger things to happen uh, this past week was the purchase of Joseph Phelps Vineyard uh, by Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy and uh, or LVMH is is known in the biz. And, call it. you know, we, we felt like this was a good opportunity to sort of just, you know, take a check back in on what's happening in the alcohol space, especially when it comes to luxury. Um, you know, the biggest you know, initial reaction I have here is. Duh, um, you know this is sort of the, the writing has been on the wall for the past few years, um, and I think what's really interesting is this is not just being driven by a sort of Gen X or older audience anymore. These are millennials as well that are trying to trade up and buy nicer bottles of wine, nicer spirits, etc., just premium across the board. And I think the, the smart companies are recognizing that, and they are trading up in kind, right? They're buying more luxury, you know, for their luxury portfolio, right? LVMH purchased Whispering Angel or Chateau d'Escalon recently as well. Um, you know, you have Constellation who is sort of, you know, trending more upscale as well. Diageo every day releasing more high-end, you know, spirits. So I think this is definitely an ongoing trend. But, you know, what was your initial reaction, Zach, specifically because you had just been in Napa when you when you heard about this? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there are like sort of two sides to this, to my reaction, and they're kind of the sides of the purchase agreement. So, you know, from the Joseph Phelps side or from the side of the the winery itself selling, I mean, I think there's, you know, it's an extension of a trend that we've seen, not just in Napa, but but it's in some ways most prominent and most interesting in Napa because of the just the sheer money at stake here. And that's this continued trend of these, you know, pretty well-established winery brands selling and selling not as far as I can tell, because as you sometimes see where it's like, oh, the the founder is, you know, of retirement age and they don't have kids or their kids don't want to take it over or there's no clear plan of succession. And so, well, what else do you do but sell? You know, Joseph Phelps as a brand has been around far longer, you know, long enough that it's long outlived its founder. And so the decision to sell, I think, is much more, and this is something I'd love your guys' perspective on, too, is about maybe some specifics about their winery and specifics about their business and maybe some specifics about Napa. But it's also, I think, a recognition of the current economic climate. And I think that we're, we saw, you know, in a different field, but but sort of related, um, you know, some moves in beer where you saw kind yeah. of very established brands 
um, like Stone most uh, notably selling again to a large, in that case, uh, to Sapporo, like a very large beer conglomerate. And you wonder, like, are some of these places just scared about what the economy is going to look like over the next couple of years coming out of what even for brands that did well during COVID and they do exist and maybe Joseph Phelps is one of them. It still was a tumultuous time, if nothing else. I think from the LVMH side, it's fascinating to me because, you know, they already have some Napa properties, um, Colgan most famously, I think. But here's an opportunity for them to get a brand that has some, you know, a pretty sizable production volume that is across a range of price points, but does have some high-end cachet. I mean, Insignia is, you know, definitely, it's not like on the shortest of short lists for great Napa Reds, but it's a highly respected and and long-standing wine that has a lot of uh, dedicated fans mm-hmm. and buyers. And it is interesting to me to see the extent to which they're looking to expand their holdings in Napa, that they still see Napa as a, a space where they can, they can generate growth. Yeah. I mean, I think on the Napa side, right? Like it's, we've had this conversation so many times that it's just like beating a dead horse at this point, but Napa is America's luxury wine region. It is what it is. And people can say as many times as they want, Napa's dead, Napa's dead. Every time I'm in Napa, I see more and more younger generation there. Like it's like you show up and you're like, whoo, you know, like I guess the analogy I can make is like when I was, um, working in like the arts when I first graduated college, like the thing you always heard and it's still kind of true is like they used to call them white tops and it's, you know, gray hairs. So mm-hmm. older people, at ba- you know, and how do we get younger and younger people involved and lots of arts organizations like BAM where I worked um, created, you know, young patrons societies uh, and they were hoping that would work. And guess what? Like all I've seen in the past, like, 15, 20 years since leaving even, you know, is that those young patient societies are, they they keep extending the age for how old you can be to be in those young patron societies because it, they, they really are having problems in the arts, getting younger people for whatever reason to join Lincoln center, to join BAM, to join the Met. Yeah. Same thing with the Met. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you're not seeing that as much in Napa. Like when I go to Napa, you definitely see young people there, you know, in their, their finest clothes, driving around, going to Gott's roadside, having, you know, trying to get a reservation at French Laundry, all that kind of stuff. And those places are doing, doing well. And I think LVMH sees that they, they're, they're not a stupid company. So, yeah. you know, I, I feel like that's something that's worth definitely noting as well in all of this. Yeah. I also, I mean, just going back to what Zach said earlier, like we're seeing this kind of conundrum in beer as well for iconic brands like what is the what's the exit plan? If you don't have somebody who's going to take over for you, is the move to sell? And obviously, we we talk about this in the in the context of like selling out in craft beer, which I guess we don't really talk about that in wine. Um, but I think it's like an interesting parallel, right? I think there are brands that would be like like uh, Dan Petrowski when he uh, has looked to expand Massacan, like his wine brand, like there have been a lot of people who have pushed back and been like, wait a second, what are you doing here? Like we thought you were like a you know, someone who is interested in like small scale production and blah, blah, blah. Wine doesn't have the same kind of like, yeah, like staunch craft, like we never sell, you know, uh, ABN Bev is the devil kind of attitude. Um, But I do think there are, and part of it's like, it would be a little bit, (laughs) a little silly for for that to come out of Napa because like there's, as Adam has pointed out, it's like such a luxury region already that like, it's not like people are, 
surprised that large luxury companies want in or want more in here. I think the thing that I want, Adam, I'm very curious your perspective about in particular, because um, as you said, you've traveled there recently a couple of times. And also like you um, talk to a lot of these uh, companies, a lot of the companies that are making these acquisitions on a pretty regular basis. What I'm really interested in is, you know, you mentioned that, that they're seeing more and more growth among younger generations uh, in this particular part of the market, of the wine market, right? Of of uh, luxury wine, very high-end wine. How do we square that with the conversation that we've been having about how wine in general is not connecting to millennials and Gen Z at the same rate that it did with older generations? Is it just that something about this specific slice of the wine market is, remains alluring? And that therefore, we're, that's why this is where a lot of the movement is happening away from, you know, sort of like, you know, inexpensive grocery store wine and towards these really premium brands? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I think yeah, that- me too. It's the, yeah, it's that everyone's moving is trading up. So everyone's looking for more luxury products. Like, ev- you know, if you've been a long time listener, like you realize that we've talked about, we've talked about this across the board in just society, right? Like younger consumers, millennials, Gen Z moving towards either what is actually luxury or what feels like it's luxury, right? And that's that premium mediocre conversation we had in the past, right? So either they're, they're looking for brands that truly are or that, are presenting themselves as being, even though they're a little bit cheaper, right? One of the examples we use in the alcohol is like a house. So I think that's exactly what's happening is consumers are still saying like, well, if I'm going to drink wine, I'm going to drink the best. Like I'm going to drink a wine that's really high quality that, you know, has a great, you know, has a great story, history, cachet, et cetera. And yes, I'm not going to go and drink wines that are grocery store wines, Um, especially when I'm heading to a dinner party, giving a gift, going to impress someone like those are definitely issues we're seeing. And it's the same thing that's happening in spirits where consumers are consistently trading up, right? They're looking for more premium tequilas, more premium bourbons, more premium, you know, scotches. Like that's what is happening and why there is such this rush. You're seeing it now happen in vodka, right? Where everyone's like running to more premium vodka, right? So it's this, this turn against almost like, okay, fine. I mean, of course, you know, you're going to have brands in vodka that will always be sort of uh, core. Tito's is what, sort of what I'm talking about here. But right. the, the, the growth really happening besides Tito's is everyone rushing after Grey Goose Kettle One, Belvedere, all that stuff. And, and that's where you're seeing also the innovation and people who are coming in and saying, we're going to take these premium brands and attach them to RTDs and make the RTDs feel premium. And I think for some of these brands too, who are building premium portfolios, those portfolios then reinforce anything else they bring on. And one mm. of the best, you know, examples I've heard about is actually LVMH, right? So LVMH is just so perfectly poised to do this, right? They can take on a brand that's already considered premium and just start pairing that brand with other super premium products, whether that's making sure that now Joseph Phelps shows up, you know, in the windows of one of their high-end fashion houses or whether, you know, now there are events where Joseph Phelps and Dom Perignon you know, appear together, it's very easy for them to just extend and expand the luxury aspect of the brands that they own. Um, and I think other other companies are doing that pretty well, at, you know, too. But I think you're going to see more of that where you're going to you're going to continue to see brands sort of shedding companies shedding off more of their lower end portfolios and purchasing and putting money behind their higher end. I mean, Heaven Hill, for example, purchasing Samson and Surrey is another example, right? Samson and Surrey owns what is 
considered by most to be only luxury spirits, right? And Heaven Hill is a company that for a very long time has been considered to be, while, you know, very successful, a, a brand, a company that really supported more of the budget bourbon world. And that was sort of their, something that they, they claim to be very proud of, right? We're a company that, you know, makes affordable bourbon and in, in sort of, for those who aren't familiar with what they make, like Elijah Craig, uh, Evan Williams, uh, Larceny, things like that. But now they're getting into the high bourbon game on their own with things like Old Fitzgerald, but then also purchasing Samson Surrey, which owns Tequila Ocho and Brené Whiskey, which is a French, you know, single malt and, um, you know, Blue Blue Coat Gin, which is a really high-end gin from Philly. So like, I think these are all things that um, – that, are changing in the in the world of alcohol in general because this is where the growth is happening. But I have a question. Do you do you think that they're actually getting rid of the lower end brands like do do they really think that this is the this is the move for the future and that there could be no value in those brands moving forward? I think that it's not so much if I were to guess it's not so much that they see no value in these brands or that they're potentially divesting from them it's although some cases you do see some of these uh sort of lower price point products being moved around between different you know companies but a lot of it is i think just looking at where growth is Mm -hmm. and so it's not that they're going to stop you know they're not going to stop making some of the inexpensive products but it's that if you're looking at acquisitions and looking at putting resources behind a thing if the if the winds are all pointing towards the top of the market being where the real growth is, at least in terms of dollars, if not in terms of like absolute volume, that's where you should be investing your money as a company. Right. I, I think it's perhaps a recognition of that. And I think it's also like, you know, no one we've been through such an unprecedented couple of years and combined with so many other things that are going on in, uh, you know, here in the US and in, in the world in terms of just understanding how consumer behavior is going to shake out. That I think a lot of places, you know, everyone is trying to be ahead of trend, of course, not just in individual products, but just understanding where the markets are going and where consumer demand is going. And that's why we're seeing so much uh, experimentation and and diversification in some of these categories, but also why you are seeing, I think, an interesting, you know, it's interesting to me that also you're seeing some of these established legacy brands being purchased and really um, kind of brought into the fold, like Joseph Phelps, because, Obviously, the folks at LVMH are not just like, oh, Joseph Phelps, you know, we've heard of it. But they're like, we we see their, we see an audience for this wine that perhaps the winery by itself was not able to, to reach. And that's where I think Adam's point about, mm. you know, being able to put it alongside high fashion or, or other, you know, very high-end luxury wine brands and sort of position it that way is really interesting because it is a thing that you can, that, that can be done with a brand when it's a part of one of these big uh, conglomerates that Joseph Phelps Vineyards on its own just couldn't do. Yeah. I ask because I mean um we we recently published a piece a few days ago about you know recent data suggesting that there might be a big change in alcohol in the like in the pre- premiumization right and we've been talking about how this has been a big trend for a few years but now what was it the below premium beer is growing while all other beer categories are, are on the decline and I'm wondering if you know if they're starting to see this in spirits will it trans will, will it like crossover to wine. And maybe this is just a reflection mm-hmm. of the current economic moment that we're in. Yeah. Um, but I think I think that's kind of an interesting, you know, this is like so different from everything we've discussed and seen in the past couple of years with regard to premiumization. I think that what we're going to continue to see is there's going to keep being this need amongst 
just the drinking public to have entry level brands. Like they, they, they shouldn't, they're never going to go away, but they're not going, I don't think that they will be the only means for which people enter the categories anymore. And that used to be a pretty like strong case that people would make. It was like, okay, well, the reason all these, you know, brands exist is because they're, they're the, they're the entry levels, right? You're the first tequila you drink is not going to be, you know, $60. It's going to be $20 and you're going to have a taste for tequila and then you might start trading up. Right. But like, that's not true anymore. Lots of people are entering categories now in at the top tier. A lot mm-hmm. of that responsibility is thanks in part to social media, right? So people are just seeing more of these high-end bottles be, you know, posted by friends, by celebrities. I mean, it's not like you ever see any of these, you know, star NBA players Instagramming bottles that are, right. you know, that, that you can easily find at Kroger. And so they're starting to like also think about that when, when they're thinking about getting into wine. So they think, oh, well, maybe I should. You're, you're having a lot of people who, who, who are saying, if you do want to get into wine, you know, the average price you should come in at is $20 or above. I know lots of people who, who try to make that case in the world of wine. Yeah. So they're seeing that as sort of the literature and what's pushing them to, to sort of also trade up. Um, so I think that is going to just continue to be a trend, but there will be, I think beer is an outlier because cheap beer has this weird allure to people yeah, that the other two categories don't, right? Yeah. We think just think about cheap beers being like things that you can just totally crush, Mm-hmm. And I think expensive beer is too too hard. Like it, it has a sort of like working class authenticity that people appreciate in a way that like yes, the cheap wine and cheap spirits don't have. Right, it doesn't reflect on your taste or your palate. No. if you're drinking cheap beer, no, it's like yeah. you you just you mowed a lawn. Yeah, or you you know went to a you know went to a show in Brooklyn or whatever. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Like cheap beers always had a place in sort of high high culture in a way like right. first it was pbr now it's clearly modello uh high life's making high a comeback mm-hmm. like and they always sort of also come through the world of like art galleries and counterculture you know like indie music all that stuff and there's but they're still seen as luxury and and you know what's so funny is i'll, I'll never forget being at south by southwest you know 10 years ago when i was still at the record label and you know, we were at this show where all these bands are playing and it was sponsored by Converse and Levi's like announcing their capsule collection. So expensive salvage jeans and really high end Converse, but all they were pouring was paps. Mm-hmm. Right. And like that was authentic to have this cheap beer next to these very expensive, you know, $250 jeans. And um, I think that that's just, as Zach's saying, that's just very different because cheap beer is able to sit in an authentic place that yeah. like cheap spirit or cheap wine, besides a few specific brands, maybe could. Like Jack Daniels is authentic and is pretty affordable. But I actually don't know that anyone would call Jack Daniels cheap. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it's not expensive, but yeah, I don't know. That it's, it's it's not quite the I don't people – yeah, I don't think people think of it as that either. Exactly. Right, whereas I like – Evan Williams is considered cheap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to make one or ask you guys one other or sort of suggest one other thing here that might explain some of this and and might explain this move too, which is we have talked at times on the podcast about what this sort of, I, I think probably somewhat overblown, but but not completely made up sort of trend towards moderation, low alcohol lifestyle, et cetera. 
and I wonder too if that's a, another sort of point in premiumization's favor, which is if you're the kind of person who says I'm only going to drink once or twice a week or you know on special occasions, well then I'm probably I'm much more inclined to make the thing I drink on those occasions or the things I drink on those occasions feel special. Yeah, and that I think could also be explaining some of this move towards these products, so that you know again if yeah if you're the person who says you know what I think it's healthiest for me if I don't drink during the week or whatever. But on the weekends, I'm not going to drink an $11 bottle of wine. I'm going to drink a $35 bottle of wine. And that habit and that mindset might be more robust, even in the face of things like inflation, than someone's daily drinking habit. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I think I think there's I, I'm not I don't think it's just because of that. I think I think that's part of it. But I think it's part of it. I mean, yeah. the only reason that I that it's a little bit hard to make that 100% characterizations so i was talking to someone another executive in the business recently and you're like if you do look at all the data right everything is increased everything is growing volume value so like the volume of the consumption volume is actually going up too okay so it's hard to say that if it was just value then we could say people were cutting back and they were drinking and spending more yeah. yeah but but they're spending more and they're drinking just just as much and it's growing mm-hmm. i think a lot of it though does also have to do with covid that you know, there's so many people I know who just realized how much better if they were willing to spend $35 on a wine they felt the wine was than the wine that when they used to spend 15, but then were willing to spend 35 to 40 out. Do you know what I mean? And so right. just people who are like, look, you know what? <laughs> on a Friday night when I have dinner at home or a Thursday night when we order pizza in, I'd much rather, I've now realized that it's much more pleasurable and enjoyable if I, to open one really good bottle than one sort of mediocre bottle. Um, and you're seeing that across the board in, in spirits too. Right. And, and the only place you're not, and I think that people are, are substituting the affordable drink with beer. So like, if it's going to be that cheap, that like very easy going drink, like on the day, you know, during the day on Saturday, maybe it's not a cheap bottle of Rosé, it's a Modelo or it's a, you know, it's a seltzer. Hard seltzer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And so all, all of this is influencing people moving more premium, including just what's happening in normal society with the rest of the things we're buying. Everyone's buying linen sheets now from Brooklyn and, and you know, tons of high-end pots and pans, even if they're not truly high-end, right? But they feel like they Whatever are. the shoes you keep buying are, I forget. Ex- or get exactly. On Common projects and, and, <laughs> you know, on know, cloud? and all that. Oh, ons. Yeah, dude, ons. The ons. line outside the on store in Soho is insane. You know, so everyone's kind of like looking for these things now. And, and this is just following that general trend. I mean, look, could a recession hard reset all this? Absolutely. But alcohol is definitely more resilient in recessions than most other product products. And people tend to keep their normal behaviors when it comes to alcohol in recessions, right? Because again, if you've gotten used to something, that's the one thing you're usually like when it comes to consumption, that's the one thing that research usually shows you're unwilling to cut out of your budget. Like you're willing to cut out of your budget, maybe dining out and you'll cook more at home, but you'll drink still nice at home because you're used to having nice to drink and you'll probably eat still nice at home. But you, the, the savings is that you're not paying the restaurant markup, mm-hmm. right? So Alcohol is pretty resilient in that in that regard, but you know who knows. But it's just it's so interesting to see this is just the trend that's continuing to happen. Obviously, I, I definitely think more purchases are coming. I mean, that's mm-hmm. also like what you know they always say about a recession is that not every company in a recession does poorly, and right. recessions are 
either ones that threaten that they're oncoming or ones that actually happen are the perfect are the time when you see the strong companies make lots of purchases. It's the perfect yeah. time to go shopping. Mm-hmm. Right. So what else will we see that gets bought? Who knows? But more is definitely coming. More is definitely coming. Uh, all right, guys. Well, we are a short week. We'll be back in your feeds on Friday. Uh, and uh, Joanna and Zach, I'll talk to you then. Talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasty's director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.